Today I'll be reading Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 32. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for the error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, invaders of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Thank you, Eloisa, for reading this difficult passage. Admittedly, these verses are hard to listen to. We are parents, children, grandparents, grandchildren, singles, and married who wrestle with the meaning of the passage and most often struggle to know how to live by its teaching today. We may be hearing some things in the text that just clash with our way of seeing things. If we were truly listening, we found ourselves along the way. I personally may not be guilty of all the vices listed by Paul, but I have seen too many of the evils listed in my own life. For example, I hate seeing pride in my own heart. The verses are difficult because they address an elephant in the room, as it were. The elephant in the room is an English idiom for a situation like this. The person responsible for most of the tension in the workplace is leading a seminar about healthy work environments. The elephant in the room is what everyone sees, but no one wants to discuss because talking about it would be explosive. Our Canadian culture at present, values most highly privacy, multiculturalism, tolerance, and public religious neutrality. Any semblance of a religious moral framework is absent. It is understood that no one should say anything that would restrict our desire to be something or do something. If we are suffering personally, well, we would rather talk about mental illness, physical illness, toxic work environments, and relational challenges than talk about our personal choices and their consequences. But if there is a massive disruptive elephant in the room that is destroying everything in our lives, we need to identify it and deal with it, not ignore it or try to suppress it. For example, if we are diagnosed with cancer, we need to hear the diagnosis in order to walk toward healing. If the oncologist says, you're just fine, now go home and, and take these two aspirin, we're being wrong. As Catherine Booth wisely said, there is no improving the future without disturbing the present. So I would encourage you, even if you do not agree with Romans 1, to continue listening. Sometimes we need to hear some bad news in order to receive good news. Let's approach today's text with humility and just be open to what God is saying. 
Here are five foundational statements that set the parameters for our conversation today. One, the center of the gospel is Jesus, not our sin. As Paul writes, Jesus is the Son of God in power. He came that we might all have life and have it abundantly. Two, all people are broken by sin. Sin is our willful desire to walk independently of our Creator and to think, decide, and do things contrary to His character. Throughout the Roman, Romans 1 passage, human beings are represented as active. They're not represented as taken captive against their own will or as the innocent victims of the evil influences of their environment. Their seeing, thinking, and doing are tied to their inner life. We are all broken by sin. All means all. Three, as we move from the brokenness of sin to wholeness in Christ, we must extend grace to one another without compromising the truth of God. God extends grace to us. Paul writes in Romans 2.4 that God's kindness leads to life change. If God does not help us see our spiritual need, we are not likely to be interested in the way to healing. Four, our human way of seeing things must be evaluated in light of the biblical way of seeing things. Too often we live in our own world of ideas, opinions, longings, and feelings. We all need a reference point outside of ourselves. As followers of Jesus, we depend on the Bible to receive God's perspective on the human condition. For example, our way of grading some sins as being more severe is often very unbiblical. Some say same-sex attraction is the ultimate sin, almost unforgivable. At the same time, they would say gossip is almost acceptable, at least forgivable. James 3 says an untamed tongue is set on fire by hell, demonic. According to Scripture, sin is sin, and the ultimate sin is the rejection of God. Five, the gospel is the power of God for, for salvation for to everyone who believes. Through faith in Jesus, everyone can be made right before God, made whole in Jesus, no matter what sin they have committed. We all equally need Jesus. So with this in mind, let's look at Romans chapter 1. Paul describes the human condition when men and women refuse to honor God their creator. His description fits ancient, contemporary, and future civilizations. Three times human beings take, make an exchange in this passage. They exchange God for idols, verse 23. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, verse 25. And they exchange what is natural for what is contrary to nature, in verse 26. They pursue their own gods, their own ideas, and their own morality. This is exactly what we are seeing in Canada today. In response, three times Paul says God gave them up, verse 24, 26, and 28. In each instance, people make choices and God responds, not by intervening, but by letting men and women go their own way and experience the consequences of their thinking and actions. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Have it your way. 
And the judgment experienced is moral, spiritual, and relational breakdown. And when it happens, most often people do not understand why. According to Romans 1, 18-25, our root problem is idolatry. And some of us might immediately respond by saying, What? I don't have any idols on my shelf. Allow me to explain why idolatry applies to all of us. You see, we are all created to worship. If we do not worship our Creator, we will worship someone or something else in God's place. Idolatry is whatever we give our best energy or passion to, whatever we expect life from, whatever we put in the place of the one true God. It can be sex, science, money, power, sports, hobbies, ministry, and most often, self. The human heart is an idol factory. The essence of our sin is the attempt to get rid of God. Again, the essence of our sin is the attempt to get rid of God. Historian Professor Mark A. Knoll writes that in Canada today, God is now a reference to a historical legacy. He is on the margins. We have removed God from the center of our existence and put ourselves at the center. Our root problem is that we have gone our own way. We have put ourselves on the throne. We're our own heroes. And we tend to suppress any teaching that challenges our right to think and do as we please. There's just one problem. When we remove God from the human equation, we no longer understand what it truly means to be human, and we suffer. To not admit this is to ignore the elephant in the room. What happens when people suppress the knowledge of God? Romans 1 verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. When we no longer acknowledge God to be God, we become blinded in our thinking and our actions blind others. We become confused around our sexuality. Our speech diminishes others. Relationships become dysfunctional. The consequence is the moral paralysis of our society. That's why one Canadian politician said to me a few years ago, the moral fabric of our Canadian society is coming undone. To not say it would be to deny reality. In Romans 1 verse 24 we read, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The word lust there uh, in this context refers to a strong inner desire towards sexual perversion. It is a passion that replaces what should be a passion for God because the self has been idolized. All of us experience brokenness in our sexuality. Whether we are straight, gay, lesbian, transgender, or however we might identify ourselves, according to Scripture, our brokenness is the consequence of our idolatry, our willful separation from God. Paul goes on in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. These words are explosive in our culture. Is Paul just a hate-filled, narrow-minded, on-the-wrong-side-of-history bigot speaking a word that has absolutely nothing to do with us today? Some would say Paul lived within an ancient worldview which does not reflect our progressive 21st century social norms. They allege these verses to be irrelevant. Let's look at the ancient world for a minute. Studies of primitive and ancient societies reveal that fully two-thirds of them affirmed same-sex relationships as an acceptable lifestyle. The Greeks, Romans, Phoenicians, Egyptians, Persians, and Galatians, to name a few, tolerated and sometimes looked approvingly on same-sex relationships, especially between men. Sometimes they were viewed as a higher form of sexuality. According to the Roman historian and biographer Suetonius, the Emperor Nero, who was emperor at the time of the writing of Paul's letter to the Romans, he married a boy in a traditional wedding ceremony, who then played the part of a woman. Nero then had incestuous relations with his mother, Agrippina, whom he later murdered. He also married a man while he, Nero, played the part of a woman. To put it mildly, Nero was experimenting with his sexual orientation, and Nero was not the only person in Roman society to be doing so. In his letter to the Romans, to the Roman churches, Paul was definitely swimming against the moral climate of Rome. Should he not have been more tolerant and obliging if he wanted the Romans to give him a hearing. After all, Rome was the center of Greco-Roman civilization, the most progressive and sophisticated of all ancient societies. So what was he thinking? Let's remember that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans from Corinth. In that city, one temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of sexual love and beauty, had 1,000 sacred prostitutes. They practiced their craft in the city. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the latter half of verse 9. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. The practice of same-sex relations is listed as sin together with sexual immorality, idolatry, and adultery. It is found in the middle of the list. Everything in the list violates the image of God. But let's continue reading. Something happened. And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Corinthian followers of Jesus were transformed by the power of God. Paul believed that same power would also transform lives in Rome. 
Some argue that Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, refer only to pederasty, that is, sexual relations between a man and a boy, as in the case of Nero. But the text does not refer to pederasty. Yet others would say the text refers to gay or lesbian acts committed by straight people, that which is unnatural to heterosexuals. Again, that is just not what is written. In verses 26 and 27, Paul uses the words male and female, not men and women, drawing on the creation account of Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He is emphasizing that human beings were created male and female with a design for their sexual relations. But their idolatry led to confusion in relation to their sexual orientation. Man and woman differ in sexuality but are equal bearers of God's image. Together they express the wonderful duality of gender that God created in humanity. Our own way leads to confused sexual expression, no matter our orientation. You might say, okay, that's what Genesis says, but what does Jesus say? Jesus bases his teaching on creation. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, he weaves together Genesis 1.28, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, with Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus teaches that at its heart, marriage is a unique union between a man and a woman where they become one flesh in a lifelong bonded relationship. God himself knits together a man and a woman, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And the intimacy of that union demands faithfulness for life. Returning to our passage in Romans 1, Paul says men and women have a natural way of interacting with each other having desires for one another, and having sexual relations. In verse 26, contrary to nature, refers to acts that are contrary to the created order. It does not mean contrary to our subjective experience of what feels right or natural to us. The Bible teaches that all sexual acts, both physical and emotional, outside the covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman, fall outside of God's design. Regardless of genetic or hormonal causes, the call of God is to respectfully submit to his created design for life. In Canada, however, higher value is given to individual liberty and the unrestrained pursuit of sexual love. Since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, the biblical view of marriage has been challenged. Sexual activity has become the domain of two consenting persons, with or without love, committed or uncommitted, heterosexual or otherwise. Maybe these words of Jesus and Paul leave us exasperated and we say, okay, everyone is marred by the stain of sin and all face the consequences of the fall on their sexuality. All means all. We acknowledge that Not following God's design leads to pain and suffering, but what can we do? Before I answer this question, let's look at the rest of our passage. 
Unfortunately, human sin is not confined to sexual sin. In verses 28 to 32, it appears that sin goes to an even deeper level. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. People do not see it fit, right, moral, to acknowledge God. They believe they have tested him, analyzed him, and found him wanting. So they consider it right to turn away from him. In the original, there's a wordplay. It goes something like this. People do not think God to be worthwhile, so God gives them up to worthless minds. People sit in judgment on God and dismiss him from their lives, so God permits them to suffer the consequences of their desires and actions. They are unable to think clearly and discern what is right. Here's an example. One of the leaders of the New Atheist Movement, Richard Dawkins, wrote in his book, The God Delusion, I quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Whew! When asked to explain the origin of life on earth, Dawkins admits that we don't know who started the process of life, but that it was possible that we will one day find out that aliens were responsible for seeding life on earth. Now, is that really a more plausible explanation than creation by God? When Paul refers to a debased mind in verse 28, 28, He refers to the clouding of reasoning faculties, the searing of the moral conscience, the the futility of attempting to construct an order contrary to the order established by our Creator. The abandonment of God in the name of superior wisdom and science turns out to be foolishness, and it results in moral breakdown. With a list of 21 vices, Paul makes a general description of how people with debased minds behave. The first four are umbrella terms for sin. Unrighteousness, the absence of what is just. Evil, what is sinister and dark. Covetousness, the relentless urge to have more, even at the expense of harming others. And malice, moral depravity. The next 13 sins destroy human relationships. Uh, Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, people who poison relationships, slanderers, stabbers in the back, haters of God, insolence, a mixture of cruelty and and pride that enjoys seeing others suffer, haughty, the self-sufficient person who sets himself on a pedestal above all others, boastful, one who makes empty boasts and false promises, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. If there is one thing God hates, it is the hideous nature of human pride, and human pride always destroys relationships. Our own way Well, it leads to relational breakdown. And if this were not enough, Paul adds six more general terms for the absence of love. Foolish, senseless, faithless, covenant breakers, 
heartless, the lack of love as in a mother or a father who abandons their family and children who neglect aging parents, ruthless, merciless. When a society removes God from the scene, there is increased sexual immorality, increased violence, and ever-increasing relational breakdown. Confused thinking leads to antisocial behavior. Love grows cold. Recently, a CTV News piece reported that 5 million Canadians had experienced the end of their romantic partnerships during the pandemic. That's right, 5 million, one in seven Canadians. We need to acknowledge that we really struggle to do relationships well. In a recent conversation with a young woman who was thinking of leaving her husband for seemingly justifiable reasons, she noted that everyone had encouraged her to leave him. Her situation was unjust. He was unreasonable. She didn't deserve this. Not one person among her peers had encouraged her to work toward an outcome other than separation. So as we end in verse 32, we encounter the climax of the passage. Paul argues that people not only sin, but find perverse pleasure in encouraging others to rebel against their creator and the creator order. They label sin as good or natural and do great damage to those around them because eventually immoral behavior becomes normal and people no longer see sin to be sin. Those who applaud immoral behavior make a deliberate contribution to the deterioration of human life and do damage to an indefinite number of people. The worst sin is the rejection of our Creator. And if there could be a worse sin, it would be to actively encourage others to get rid of their Creator. In the West, since the 19th century, We've come to believe that we are progressing from primitive life forms to more advanced ones. We speak of development, progress, and fulfillment in all areas of life. We just assume that we are progressive, forward-looking, advanced, and evolutionary when we follow the changing moral and social norms of our postmodern culture. The scriptures would say we are experiencing regression, not progression, decline, not advancement, devolution, not evolution. So is there any hope? Is there a path forward? Most definitely. Let's remember Romans 1 verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul had seen the power of the gospel at work in the city of Corinth. He had seen sinners washed, sanctified, and justified. In his list of sinners were included the idolaters, the sexually immoral, the greedy, and the proud. In Jesus, they had found a new standing and identity before God. They were now a new creation, empowered to live as God would have them live. In similar fashion, Paul expected to see the power of God at work in Rome. Although he knew the demands of the gospel to be challenging, he also knew the grace of God to be more than sufficient to free the Romans to walk in fullness of life in God. Forgiveness and healing were available to all of them, 
And so it is for us today. The only way forward is a return to God's way. When we turn from our own ways and submit to God's way, we open ourselves to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. As we give ourselves to Jesus, we all deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. We all find our identity in Him. As I said earlier, one of the lies of our culture is that we should put ourselves at the center of our own lives. We should not. It actually kills us. When we are our own gods, we become increasingly anxious and fearful because deep within us, we know we are incapable of being God. Another lie of our culture is that sexual orientation is core to our identity. It's not. And sexual intimacy is not necessary for wholeness. As followers of Jesus, our identity is centered in the one who defines what it means to be human, Jesus. He is our way, our truth, and our life. Another lie is that we can do life on our own. We can't. We all have a strong need for relational intimacy. And it is also true that we can live full, rich lives without expressing our need for intimacy through sexual intercourse. Look at the example of Jesus. We must recognize that singleness and celibacy do not make one a second-class person, nor is a single person, regardless of orientation, merely a pre-married person. We are called to walk together toward the likeness of Jesus, no matter what our place in life or orientation. We can all be whole in Jesus. And there's more good news. A relationship with Jesus also offers us a new family. We are graced by the Spirit to have meaningful friendships where affection is expressed without sensuality. Willingdon, as a church family, we must develop the kind of relationship where there will be room for authenticity and accountability, a place for struggles to be shared, and a place where sexual brokenness can be healed at the cross. That is our calling. Many people who struggle with their sexual orientation recount experiences of psychological aloneness and relational isolation. This is an opportunity for us as a church family to be a gracious, inclusive, countercultural community that embraces the broken and struggling with the love of Jesus. We must proclaim the power of the good news of Jesus clearly and unashamedly and provide a tangible, supportive family to all. We can be a spiritual family where all are welcome. All means all. As we journey together with people of every sexual orientation, we must become a place that is willing to understand the depths of the issues we all face, as well as the struggles, hurts, and longings. We are called to welcome all as Christ has welcomed us. Romans 15, verse 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. If you decide to journey with us, we can't promise that we will always get it right, but we want to. We want to be a church family that is a safe place to share our struggles around the things that Paul talked about. And we want to walk together, honoring God and honoring one another. 
I will leave you with some questions for reflection. If you are watching as a family, have conversation about the things addressed in the message today. Parents, talk to your children. Children, talk to your parents. I know Willingdon Kids and Student Ministries have resources. The book by Christopher Ewan, Holy Sexuality, is especially helpful. If you are watching with friends, engage in open conversation about your questions and struggles. Let's support one another in our journey toward the likeness of Jesus.